welcome to Conveyancing Matters with Lorraine and Stu. Join us for a chat about all things property. Well, hello, hello. Welcome to this uh, Conveyancing Matters series on um, conveyancing process in other jurisdictions. And Stu and I are delighted to uh, welcome uh, Chris Fick, who I'm incredibly jealous uh, is has his own firm based in Cape Town in South Africa. So hello, Chris. Welcome, welcome. Hello, hello. Thank you, thank you. And hey, Stu, how are you doing? I'm not bad, thank you, Lorraine. You okay? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. So, Chris, it's really, really kind of you to join us. Um, as I mentioned to you off air, we are, uh, there's been lots of talk over here about, you know, how grim the conveyancing process is. Um, and um, we therefore thought it would be really interesting for conveyancers over here, Chris, to uh, to hear from conveyances in other jurisdictions. So it's really, really kind of you to uh, to come on and talk to us. So to kind of ease us in, Chris, do you mind telling us just just a little bit about yourself, how you how you fell into property law, and and you know the firm you've got now, and the type of work you do now? Right. Uh, thank you. Um, well, how I fell into property law, I grew up on a farm. Uh, in uh, Overberg, which is about 120 kilometers uh, east of Cape Town, and, and uh, went to Salomon University and then came to Cape Town. Uh, so during my articles, I had quite an extensive exposure to conveyancing, and uh, that's really where the where you know the I think the interest in property, land, and law met properly, um, and uh, I then immediately got a. a appointment at another firm for, to be a conveyancer and I just never stopped since then. Uh, and that was uh, the end of 1978 when I qualified and uh, at Salon Bosch. Uh, so since my end of my articles was 1980 and so since 81 I've been practicing conveyancing. Oh that's interesting as I say we um that we used they used to be called articles over here we've sort of we've morphed into training contracts Chris now and now they're going to be coming qualifying work experience but but that's interesting and you know to start with really because Stu and I have both said that you know we sort of fell into property work and certainly when I did my articles Chris um you know you do the job that's there for you in a way and I worked for a good property lawyer when I did my articles ago uh, that's what I ended up doing uh, it was that a similar thing for you or did you have a choice no, I suppose I had a choice, but I wasn't sure when I when I finished my studies what I wanted to do. I, and, and in articles, I think because of the extensive, at 14 out of my 24 uh, months of, of what now is called um, candidate attorneyship, basically, uh, <laughs> uh, was in conveyancing. And I liked it. Um, I got good at it, good, good, good training. And I wasn't particularly interested in litigation. Um, and so that's why it stuck with me. And I, I enjoy it then, I enjoy it now. Yeah, it's interesting. I think we, Stu and I certainly talk about having that, um, you know, that very much contentious or sort of non-contentious sort of view of work, really. But um, but Stu, so tell, tell Chris about some of the uh, highlights of the sort of, you know, the grim conveyancing process over here. And, uh, and perhaps Chris can then sort of briefly walk us through a, a South African conveyancing transaction, but Stu, give Chris some of the edited highlights yeah. of how, what's going <laughs> on over here. 
Well, I think in 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 England uh, and Wales, Chris, um, there's a big movement from non-conveyances to highlight the fact that the conveyancing system is, and I'll use the words, broken. Um, that's the words that that gets banded about all the time. And I think in the main, uh, it's the length of time it takes. Um, Lorraine, wouldn't you say probably 99% of the, the issues that we talk about revolve around the length of time it yeah. takes. And um, I think typically here, um, last year, uh, during the, the, the COVID pandemic, we were probably talking on average 20 weeks um, to get from, from, from the start to completion. And even now, we're probably talking around the, the, the 16, 17, 18 week mark. So the length of time is probably the, the, the one big thing that obviously not only our clients moan about, but all, all third parties to the transaction, particularly the estate agents, uh, really like to highlight um, and, and basically give us conveyances a, a drumming over. So uh, here, um, I think we're probably, you know, in terms of the volume of work that we do, um, it's, I would say, what do you reckon in terms of between now and uh, sort, of, sort of between start and exchange? You, you've got to be talking at least 12 weeks, I would have thought. Yeah, I would say so. And a, and a, a frightening amount of that time, Chris, is spent um, on the due diligence, really, around, um, you know, money and source of funds and money laundering issues. And, uh, and what really interested me when we spoke off air is that there's, there's much sort of clearer lines isn't there in in your jurisdiction between um you know the, the lawyers have got different jobs but chris can you perhaps take us if someone in cape town decides they want to sell their house what do they what do they do broadly give us an overview of the process over there with you yeah well they'll go to one of the agencies uh, usually uh, it's not all that uh, anymore but i would say 90 95% will go to uh, a regular agency um, to give them a mandate or mandates, uh, joint mandates uh, to a couple of agencies to market and sell. Mm -hmm. um, and um, there's been quite a movement by uh, a group of attorneys, including me, to in fact get the lawyers involved more early, actually from the beginning, right? To say, well, okay, let me just get you the right agent, in my opinion. Uh, in some cases, sellers try and sell themselves through private property, which is a, a quite a, a good website, second biggest website and property here, uh, where they can register and get a pack and then sell it themselves. Uh, been a couple of mishaps with that, so I, I um, with my clients, so I tend to tell them, if you want to do that, get me involved at the minimal fee, basically just hold your hand, make sure you've got the right details in there, you take the right steps, you don't describe your sectional title unit as Earth 3, 4, 5, 6, but actually as Section 2 uh, in the blocks and so. Um, that's what we have with sectional and, and conventional here. Mostly the residential properties consist of that. Um, and then um, uh, when the contract is signed, the seller will nominate the uh, conveyancer, usually. There's quite a bit of trouble or interference from agencies who prefer their attorneys to be involved, but, but, but it is the prerogative of the seller uh, to do that. Of course, a purchaser can negotiate for his conveyancer to do the conveyancing, and then it's up to the seller whether he agrees to that or not. Um, uh, but yeah, usually the seller will appoint the conveyancer. Then we get the contract, and then we... Uh, and obviously, obviously liaise with the client, uh, the purchaser as well. Um, 
and implement a contract for both parties, right? Uh, sometimes we will have an issue with a contract and try and get it more clear about certain aspects uh, before we actually uh, jump into it. Uh, but usually it, it uh, will just start by me making contact with both parties, get their documentation. Uh, from the seller, I'll also get the loan account number from the bank where he has his bond. So I'll write to the bank and say, listen, it has been sold. Please instruct your uh, bond cancellation department to instruct your attorneys for the bond cancellation in conjunction with my transfer. And on the purchaser side, um, in most cases, that contract would be subject to the suspensive condition that the contract will only become final once a bank loan has been approved to make it possible for that purchaser to uh, finance the transaction. Um, so if there are no suspensive conditions, um, uh, then the contract is final uh, on signature and uh, is just concluded with a process to ownership will pass in the deeds office on, a on, on signature by the registrar of deeds when we've handed in the documents at, uh, at the registrar. Um, but uh, if there's a suspensive condition, when it's been fulfilled, it's also final. So we do not have a, dra a dragged out uh, procedure in regard to um, legality or, or finality really. It's, it's a matter of going through the motions, making sure we get our registrations from the local municipality or the authority uh, to get our uh, receipt, transitive receipt from the receiver of revenue. Um, uh, and then if necessary, link up with the bond cancellation attorneys and with the bond attorneys for a batch of three basically to lodge simultaneously. Um, and we normally will lodge around about six weeks after the contract has been signed, maybe seven, uh, within a week. Sorry to cut across you there, Chris. So the contract is signed sort of, is it signed sort of with the estate agent, sort of re at the, really at the beginning when the seller and buyer kind of first do the deal? Um, so if the buyer needs mortgage financing, as we would call it over here, rather than a bond, um, the contract will effectively be what is that sort of generated essentially by the agent and that will have a standard condition in yeah. it to essentially say it's conditional on mortgage financing. Yeah, they have a template, you know, all the agencies put all options in there and uh, it's part of their duty really to also make sure that a contract is um, implementable, right? So in fact, the purchaser will have money to pay the seller. Um, so uh, the cost must be declared, of course, uh, clearly to the purchaser, so the budget can be prepared by him or her for that yeah. purpose. Um, but there's normally about a three or four week uh, period from date of acceptance of the offer by the seller for the purchaser to apply to a bank or, or use a mortgage originator, which we have, who will apply to all banks get all the information from the purchaser and apply to all banks and see where they can get the best rate at which bank for this purchaser yeah um, and then the purchaser will accept the quote um, and advise me and uh, we just carry on and i will then liaise uh, with you know as i say the attorneys for the bank as a new bond bank but it could be a different bank for the cancellation of the existing bond of the seller so, yeah, and that's, that's how we do it. But it's controlled by one conveyancer, uh, the transferring conveyancer, who liaises with the other conveyancers uh, yeah. for those two aspects. There's not a 
purchase a, a conveyancer. Although I, if there's anything that I would pick up that might be um, problematic uh, and I can't sort out um, through uh, discussions, negotiation, mediation, if you like, um, and then I would just tell the purchaser to please get yourself an attorney to help you with this. Um, because okay uh, so so the one conveyancer essentially acts for seller and buyer and the two lenders have their own separate representation yes because we certainly wouldn't have that over here would we Stu? um you know it wouldn't be that yeah. close in terms of the one conveyance having controls Stu. now we would have a separate lawyer for the buyer and a separate lawyer for the seller yes i understand so um it's quite handy i wouldn't mind to be involved with lots of other transactions as well but <laughs> but uh we don't really have a problem with that um um but we are uh, also encouraging agents and our clients on both sides seller and purchaser to do a property inspection report um you know by either by a home inspector or by a structural engineer um at least to uh, cover the for the purchaser's sake to cover the uh, the four pillars of, uh, you know, the structure of the property, the foundation, the roof, and the stormwater flow off, right, runoff. Um, um, that must be right, and you can't always see it if you're an inexperienced purchaser. Um, so it is not all that usual, but there's a strong, for the last couple of years, we're strongly recommending that to happen, and it might become compulsory to at least offer that purchaser the possibility. We like to offer it as well uh, to all buyers, so to make sure that uh, what we have a, a clause called the food stewards clause in our contracts, which is a, a Dutch term for buying as is, right? Yeah. Um, so uh, we, we um, you buy it as you see it. Uh, and then a difference between patent and latent defects uh, to make sure you know that that is also uh, more put on the table. The seller will give a property condition report as well, declaring everything that can be seen, that can't be seen, what he knows about uh, or knows of, uh, to make it easier to deal with issues upfront. Um, yeah, I mean that's yeah. certainly the similar principle over here, um, Chris. Caveat emptor is our term. Let the buyer beware. But actually, what's What's interesting is you've mentioned, and again, we mentioned this off air a, a while ago when we chatted, um, you know, that there are clearly parallels with, uh, with, with English, um, you know, the English process. And uh, tell, me, tell me what you told me about the land registration system in, in, uh, in your area and, and why it's similar to, to over here. Yes, I mean, uh, obviously, uh, when the Dutch uh, colonized the Cape in 1652, there was first a Dutch uh, sort of system, but it wasn't the, the, the uh, organized and surveying of the land system, which uh, you would normally have in the old uh, grants. Maybe your farm will be an hour by horse, north, west, south and east instead of a diagram but when the english came to the cape uh, they implemented a much more advanced uh, system for, especially for the surveying of land um, and uh, almost the whole of the country except on certain state land pockets um, is surveyed um, all land is surveyed and uh, title deeds uh, refer to a diagram right uh, from our surveyor general's office um, and uh, our title deeds, of course, will then uh, all be registered in these offices. We've got nine across the country. Um, yeah, so uh, the English system, 
we still had governors, uh, the grants uh, or the quitrent and the freehold uh, grants of those times were, were, still in, uh, were still issued by the by the English governors at the time, and you'll see them still in, in our these offices. Um, so you've basically got a system of land registration, Chris. Do you have? Um, I mean, certainly, Stu, this is a big issue for us, isn't it? Um, uh, you know, issues with with titles. So, Stu, give give Chris some examples of the of the title problems we can come across. Well, um, we've had some problems in recent years uh, where you had a connivance between, <laughs> you know, a, a crooked person uh, with the assistance of an inside job at a deeds office, right? Oh. Um, or just forgery of signatures, but that is blatant. Um, and, and uh, but obviously you can't get away with that. You know, if they, sooner or later that's caught up and fixed, right? And uh, the person will go to jail in most cases, not all cases, um, as would happen here. So that's, that's uh, good old fraud, Chris. But um, Stu, tell, uh, tell, give Chris some examples of the of the title problems that we have, because I think I'm right in saying that that you know they're issues that Chris doesn't tend to experience. So off you what go. What do you mean in terms of our, our actual title itself? Yeah. In what, what do you mean? Breaches of covenant and issues along those lines. So in, case, in terms of what would actually be in our title, mm. um, yeah, I mean, our, our title um, would be split into three separate sections. Um, within those sections, it will detail who owns it, the property, and whether there's any uh, charges on the, on the property. Um, but what we have is historical information that's contained on the title um that originates from when it was either first sold first formed etc but we have on there um detailed rights of way details of covenants um both positive and negative um and the issues we have is that we have to investigate that title and the class of title to make sure that what passes from a seller to a buyer is is good um and that they're not going to have any problems in the in in the future so our sort of investigation is highly around the actual title to the property itself. And to be fair, Chris, we, you know, we hit upon, you know, a surprising number of issues with the title to land. Mm. Um, either perhaps a seller has breached a covenant, which we tend to get insurance for these days. But, you know, there are a surprising number of, of perhaps rights of way that, are needed that haven't been granted or that sort of thing or the extent of the land isn't perhaps properly denoted but certainly when we chatted off air Chris I got the impression that actually matters of actual title problems with the title aren't really something you tend to come across is that is that Not fair? Much. No I mean we you, you could find a, um, a, a condition not uh, uh, you know uh, um, in your current title it which hides behind the privity uh, because we first had basically the conditions were just uh, you know your title it was made uh, subject to the conditions as referred to in the previous deed and that would carry on carry on um, uh, but then we brought in the pivot system uh, 1937 I think it is um, uh, and all conditions uh, in the title deed that the, the, the conditions applicable to a, to a title deed or the servitudes or whatever um, since that time will carry everything, will, will not everything. And it's only when you still have a reference to the privity that you go behind it and go and look, is yeah. there, uh, is there a, some, 
you know, limitation or restriction and so on. But no, we don't have that much problems with that. Uh, we, I don't think our system is just not old enough to have the kind of things that you have. You will sometimes find there's a problem with, with the surveying that maybe is a couple of meters bigger or smaller um, with, with more advanced um, technology, uh, but not really big, a big problem. Um, generally, we don't have that, and we don't take out security of title at all. Uh, I know in, in America it's quite common, uh, here not. Our system is very secure. We think we have a slow, tedious, but secure system, right? It's not, uh, it's not slow, Chris. It's definitely not slow. <laughs> I can promise well, you. Well, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm happy to say that maybe you guys must come and learn in the colonies how to do your conveyancing. Yeah, well, I think uh, I think that's probably what we're trying to promote. I think, uh, you know, <laughs> without any shadow of a doubt, I'd be there like a shot, to be honest. So one of the massive things that we, um, that conveyances uh, over here have got bogged down with, and, and, you know, Stu, bless him at the top of a firm, has to deal with this all the time, is, is when a buyer is contributing their own money towards a transaction over and above what they might be getting by way of mortgage or bond in your case, um, the anti-money laundering, you know, responsibilities imposed on the lawyers now are are huge. I mean, they're absolutely huge um, in terms of source of funds and source of wealth. So, how, and that's what, and Stu, you know, take over here. I mean, give Chris a flavour of, of how long that might take. If you go back maybe 20 years ago, when I first started, or 20 plus years ago, you you barely looked into um, any sort of source of funds. You barely looked at the client. You know, most clients came into the office. But where things have rapidly evolved um, during that period, you know, we have to be certain now that the client is who they say they are and we're really susceptible to, to fraud them in that circumstance. We have to also look into the clients and whether they own the property. Because, again, property fraud is, is, is now becoming so big. And of course, money laundering in itself has become such a big part of the conveyancing um, process and actually checking people's source of funds to ensure that they've not originated from any criminal activity is now a job that probably, you know, certainly ranks on par with looking at the title. You know, it takes just as long to look into the client and their source of funds as it does now checking out the title to a property. So our investigation into the client can take weeks and weeks and sometimes the clients don't have the money they're getting it by way of a gift from somebody else so our investigation extends to that person and, and it can be never-ended so 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 what's it like your end um in terms of you know looking into the client looking into the money and where it's come from yeah i mean uh similar but but not to that extent and not uh we also feel we, we waste too much time on doing the bank's jobs and the government's jobs <laughs> but we are i suppose best place to do so and also i think um, it justifies our job to a large extent our involvement otherwise maybe you could just go to a, an office and push a button and it's from a to b done uh, no we have the same source of wealth source of of, of funds um uh, identifying the client um, uh, and the place of residence, making sure that is correct. Um, the, the funds, uh, if it's over 25,000, I think it is now in cash, then it gets reported um, uh, to a, a financial intelligence center to investigate. Um, the banks do the same. So basically the banks and us do the same job of investigating to a large extent. We do have a lot of also uh, scamming, um, 
uh, fraud uh, by hacking of emails and so on. And that's why we, in that case, we have more of that, I think, than actually um, people, you know, trying to um, buy when they're not the right person. Um, so the scanning is more more uh, prevalent, and and that's why we we uh, do not accept a change of an account number um, uh, in a, in various if not all practices, uh, unless the person comes into the office, or I, in my case, I will do a if I know the person well enough, I'll, I'll do a Zoom call or a WhatsApp video call um, to do that. Um, but yeah, we're very careful with that. And either way around, I mean, you know, you can you can get it from a financial institution who's been hacked, uh, and can have a private Gmail address who's been hacked. Um, so it, it's, it's generally a thing we are aware of, but it doesn't seem to be as prolific as it is uh, in England. That's really interesting because um, I mean, you've just hit the nail on the head there, Chris. Actually, because I think it's fair to say, you know, most high street conveyances in England and Wales, you know, they are not going to be um you know you know dealing with laundered funds you're absolutely right i think the cyber crime the hacking the email hacking what you've described is absolutely um uh, you know stuff that we guard against over here um and again you know we mentioned off air um didn't we the um uh, the fact that you know you will very much check what, you know to whom funds are being sent um and be very very careful around that and certainly um, you know, Stu and his colleagues and all conveyances in practice are, are, are hugely aware of that issue now. But actually, Chris, what you said there is um, also interesting. I mean, how much, um, you know, I sort of get the impression and I could be wrong, but that the banks actually don't, you know, the banks seem less concerned in many ways about, about money than, than lawyers are over here. Um, so would you say the banks are sort of fairly active over there at, at sort of, being involved with source of funds and where people's money comes from? Yes, and in fact, they, they, they can incur penalties from the government uh, if their financial intelligence center documents aren't up to scratch. They have a, what they call an ADD, enhanced due diligence. Mm. They have to com complete and, on, and repeat on a regular basis uh, with their clients. Uh, despite that of, that, of course, there's, there's still a lot of shenanigans that gets done, uh, as you would have seen in the uh, press. Um, but uh, but yeah, uh, they they are as much aware and under scrutiny uh, to do the correct thing and uh, and and do proper investigation and uh, as we are. And um, so yes, we often the bank will often for me to invest a purchaser's deposit with the bank is quite a mission. I mean, in the, normally, you know, if I have a contact that says uh, the purchaser will pay 10% uh, of the deposit uh, within three or seven days, I've got to jump to get that purchaser, you know, get all the necessary documentation. If it's a trust or a company, it's, it's, uh, it's a nightmare. Uh, the trustees all have to be, uh, you know, checked, um, uh, what we call it FICAD, uh, because of the Financial Intelligence Center Act, we refer to FICA. Um, um, and, and uh, to, to get that done. Um, and it can actually delay you uh, depositing the client's money in time to get interest from day one. So Chris, come on, let's cut to the chase. Um, Stu mentioned the, you know, 16 weeks. So um, 
how long on average would a conversing tra- transaction take with you guys? 